Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code ZIBBY, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. Hi, listeners. I am so sorry. I did something wrong. I don't even know what I did, but the sound quality on Lauren Meckling and Marcy Dermansky's episodes is not quite up to par with my normal episodes. Honestly, I've done, I don't know, close to 150 episodes, and this is the first time this has happened, and I am so sorry. I'm not a technical whiz, and I guess I did something wrong. So please listen anyway. It's just not perfect, which bothers me. And now is also a great time to read the transcripts of these interviews on my website, zibbyowens.com slash transcript, which has all the transcripts for all my episodes, including a link to audio, a link to buy, and um, it's just another great way to get to know the authors. So Again, I'm really sorry. Please listen anyway, and it won't happen again. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here today with Lauren Meckling. She's the author of How Could She, a novel. A former reporter at the New York Sun and features editor at the Wall Street Journal, Lauren has written for the New York Times, Vogue, where she is a contributing editor, and The New Yorker Online. She has written several young adult novels and is also the founder of Hashtag Clog Life and the associated Instagram account. A graduate of Harvard College, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children, so welcome, Lauren. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. So could you please tell listeners what How Could She is about and then what inspired you to write it? Sure. In very short, How Could She is about the trouble and heartbreak of female friendship. And in a a longer description would be, it's a friendship triangle about three women who have a past together. They met and came up together in their 20s. And the story takes place over the course of one year when the women are a little older than 35. And they all find themselves in very different stations in life and they are still enmeshed in each other's lives but they have a difficult time digesting each other's successes and failures and over the course of the year two of the women through a series of manipulations end up trading places very cool and so why this story how did you come up with it the story came out of my obsession that really started in my 30s with friendship especially with having been dumped by my best friend. Oh, no. It was painful. At what age? I was... Ish. Like, yeah, ish. Like, like teenager or no, it happened no, no. in so your 30s. I, right. I had a best friend in my 20s, okay. and in my early 30s, my friend decided it was time for her to move on. And it was a very strange experience looking back on it because part of it was a total mystery and remains a total mystery. And then part of it was a painful circumstance that I actually understood by trying to piece it apart together in my head, thinking about what the dynamic of our friendship had been like and trying to wonder why it had gotten to a point where she just couldn't stand it anymore. And anyway, I... It must have been so hurtful. That's terrible. It was It was very hard. And yeah. it's, it's still hard because I miss her. And she's, she's a really cool woman. But... That was what she had to do. And I was writing young adult novels, and I'd been writing young adult novels through my 20s and in my early 30s. And 
this obsession with why women matter so much to each other was building within me, and I finally had the courage to write a book that I wanted to read, a book about women like myself and my friends. Wow. Well, those are the best stories, right, when it comes from, like, the truth that you're dealing with yourself, right? It's yes, yes, and I, was, I had no idea that anyone would want it, so <laughs> I was able to just really, you know, lift the veil and get in there and be truthful about, you know, the dark underside of friendship. Female friendships are super complicated. They are. Right? <laughs> They're also the best thing on earth. They're also the yes. best thing on yes. earth. But uh, I don't know. I found as I've gotten older, like some friends, I know that you get this advice in like magazine articles and everything, but friends who are a little bit less supportive maybe than others or are too demanding or maybe there's not as much time, right? People who need you to like stay on the phone for an hour and a half for every issue, you know what I mean? And yeah. don't ever ask you a question back or, you know? Yeah, well, the thing is, as you get older, you have more and more friends because we, you know, hopefully maintain our older friendships and it's so exciting to meet new people and bring them into our lives. And then one of the difficulties is being in this very polyamorous situation where there's multiple people whom you love and who all need something from you. And then, you know, to look at each friendship in particular, I think each friendship is always uneven and there's always somebody who wishes it were more consuming or they were getting more. Right. Polyamorous, I love that. I, I've never used that word before. It's my new favorite word. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so there's a lot I want to discuss in the book, just a few things. So let's discuss the role of wealth in the book because it's one of the, the themes that you write about. And you wrote, most of the unspeakably rich people Sonny and Nick were friends with were self-aware enough to understand that they did not count as good souls. Even if they voted and donated in the right direction, there was no shaking off the shame inextricably bound up in the privilege. So I wanted to know what you meant by this. And if you were trying to say, like, does wealth mean you can't be a good soul? That's an interesting question. No one has, has asked about that aspect of the book yet. The answer is it's a, it's a social satire. It's, the book is really looking at the way we live now in New York City. And I don't think it's possible to tell that story without talking about class and talking about money. And this particular set of people are so consumed with markers of success and, you know, cultural cachet and coolness. And I wasn't trying, you know, I, I don't have any problems with the wealthy as a you know, group of people. But this particular group of people, I was looking at the way that a certain sharp elbowedness and a certain element of, kind of cold it's almost a self-delusion that I think needs to set in for the people who at the beginning of the story are the, the true winners and at the top of the totem pole, how they got there. And I wouldn't say that morals have driven them to where we find them in the beginning. Right. And so this, the three main characters of the book are Geraldine, who is the only one of the triangle who is still in Toronto at the outset of the story. She is traumatized by a fiancé who left her four years ago. And both of her friends spend a lot of time looking at Geraldine and caring about Geraldine and wishing that her circumstances were equal to her goodness and, you know, feeling sorry for her. And there's also Rachel, who is a married mother of a very sweet baby and she's a failed young adult novelist and she works part-time at a magazine 
and she is struggling with trying to just, she feels like the brass ring that she wants is just out of reach. She's trying to get her career back on track. And finally, there is Sunny, who has managed to become this it girl watercolor artist who has made a very lucrative business, essentially, of being Sunny, of being this person who people are, you know, people know of and people want to be associated with in any way possible. So she makes a living and she stays busy doing a lot of quote-unquote collaborations with brands and with magazines and she's people pay her a lot of money to say what's cool. That's awesome. I want that job. <laughs> I know. I want her taste. Does anyone care what I think is cool? <laughs> no, okay. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care. Yeah. So another part of your book that I thought was really interesting and different is that you talk a lot about podcasts in the book, which as somebody who hosts a podcast, I think it's pretty cool. You even have a, a, a moment where you have Jeremy whispering to Rachel, one of the three women, you know, is it terrible that I don't listen to podcasts? Which was great because I feel like people are saying that to each other now. Like when I started a podcast, I didn't even know what a podcast was. When did you honestly. start? Like early last year, okay. which is embarrassing. I know you've been listening to podcasts since 2005, like in your closet, but I was, I mean, I listened to, we had talked about Jess Harris's From Scratch right. um, podcast, but I'd listened to hers. But aside from that, I didn't know much about it. So you have a character and then this podcast keeps coming up in the book at different parts, people referring to podcasts or listening or whatever. Um, and you wrote this fantastic Vogue essay called Confessions of a Pod Person, which was amazing about your whole history of how much you love podcasts. So I've just said a lot of stuff. Talk to me about podcasts and then I'll ask you some more about it. Of course. What I, made you put podcasts in the book? I don't know how I could have written a book without podcasts, just given how much time and thought I put into my podcast obsession and the book is also about the collapse of the traditional media world and I love the idea of podcasts gaining in reputation and importance as we move forward and I thought you know novelistically I thought it was fun to think of a podcast being a vehicle for a woman to a reinvent herself and b express herself and to a smaller degree, I thought it was fun to think about the way that Geraldine's friends or frenemies in some points listen to her podcast and they can glean little clues about what's happening in her life. And that's something that I do and I've been doing forever when I listen to podcasts because I really know my hosts. You know, even from listening to your podcast, you know, I'm fascinated by your personal. I know that, you know, I know you have four children. I know that you're divorced. I know that you're remarried. And that interests me whenever you start, that comes into your conversations. So I've been listening since, yes, 2005, which I can date because I remember that was when Slate launched its political gab fest. And I was initially just fascinated by hearing the voices of the people whose articles I was reading. And, you know, then came, you know, Mark Marin. I think he, you know, he's the comedian who has an amazing if it was a Rolodex then, I mean, he has an amazing <laughs> on it. So he would just bring on, you know, Louis C.K. and Sarah Silverman and, and get his friends to talk about absolutely everything in this very intimate way that felt novel to me. And I guess especially back then, people weren't listening so much to podcasts. So there was this sense of comfort and, you know, self-revelation that you weren't getting when you read articles in glossy magazines about people. And... I've been, you know, riding the wave ever since with this explosion. And 
I stay loyal to my show, so I just listen to more and more, and I, I add them on. Wow. So how many shows do you listen to, would you say? Each week, for instance. Like about. Yeah, maybe like there's two tw- or like 20? I don't probably. Wow. Yeah, I don't, but I have, I'm really lousy at television. I, yes, I don't, I'm not even watching anything on TV at the moment. And I read and I listen to podcasts. And I listen to podcasts in the middle of the night. So it varies. If I'm sleeping very well, I will be remiss in my podcast uh, consumption. But there's some times when I'm just, having a very hard time sleeping and I lie there in bed with my friends in my head and my ears. <laughs> it is really intimate. I've done that in, like falling asleep and the lights are off and I have my little headphones in and I'm like, this is crazy. I have like strangers in my, you know, telling me a bedtime story basically. It is like, weird if you think about yeah. that. Yes, it's weird. I have a, I was a friend who like, there's a woman I became friends with when I was working at Vogue and she had a podcast and we really like each other and we were getting to know each other and I would go and have lunch with her and I would think, this is so strange that you were in bed with me last night. <laughs> I didn't tell her at first and then I finally, you know, confessed about how much I was getting to know her and, you know. I still listen to her podcast. It's called Fat Mascara, and it's a beauty podcast, and it's hilarious. So what types of podcasts do you listen to? Mostly beauty? Mostly? No, no. Yeah. I mean, I listen to that one because I think the two hosts are so clever and fun. It's uh, Jessica Matlin and Jennifer Goldstein, and they're both beauty editors, but they, they bring on these characters from the world of hairdressing and modeling and beauty, and... I just find that there's a lot of larger-than-life personality in that recording booth, and I love it. I would say, on, in, to generally group my podcast preferences, I love the ones that feel DIY and raw and conversational. I'm not as interested in the, you know, the heavily produced narrative podcasts, as cool as they are. I, I guess I come to podcasts as a way to feel connected to real people and also to learn a bit about, you know, I learn about culture and the news, unfortunately, too much. I'd say proportionally versus how much I'm reading the newspaper <laughs> or on well, Twitter's. I don't know if that's a virtue or a vice. So, yes, I like the, I like the podcasts awesome. where there are people who I think about and who I know. You mentioned Twitter in the book, and you had some funny quote. I almost was going to write it down about... Like one of the characters skimmed the half-hearted, half-thought-out musings of Twitter or something like that. Well, there's one character. What is she, it? She was like checking her. Well, I can find it. But anyway, it was like this funny take on Twitter. How like you thought none of the thoughts were like fully formed of people who were posting and who are tweeting. I should say. Right. Well, there's also there's one character, the failed young adult novelist, mm-hmm. who kind of has a um, bipolar Twitter presence, where she will tweet sometimes very sharp witty observations and yeah. nobody cares <laughs> and then she will watch you know she'll try to tweet the way that the successful young adult writers are tweeting like hashtag cupcakes hashtag i'm writing and then she'll get a little more traction there it's so refreshing to have that in a novel because at least for me like this is like the stuff i'm doing every day but it's not so yeah. much in fiction yet so i don't know it's just so cool to have you put it in like all the stuff and that's in my brain well good um, I wanted to, book to feel like I mean for me very relevant well I just wanted to feel like the way it feels to be hunched over your phone and texting with a fascinating friend or maybe gossiping about a third friend and I you know I just wanted to capture the way we actually do communicate and live now so of course Twitter comes in 
Thanks. So when did you write this book? Tell me about like your, a little more about the process. How long did this book take to write? When and where? You said you found it. You like your husband encouraged you to pull it off the shelf. Yes. So I started it. I was pregnant with my daughter, who's about to turn five. So I started it maybe six years ago, when I was in my, you know, I was 35 and still really bruised. And you know, I still hadn't found a new intimate friend and. You know, I still haven't replaced that friend. I started writing it when I was 35. I had just written a young adult novel that nobody wanted to buy. And when I say that, I don't mean no one in the bookstore. I mean, nobody wanted to nobody, produce nobody, it as okay. a book. So I literally, I, I was, I had a, at that point a part-time job at the Wall Street Journal, and I had a couple of days a week when I was going to a writing space. And I thought, all right, this is my time. I'm going to write the book I actually really want to read. And then, after having written about 80 pages, I got an amazing and very consuming job as an editor at Vogue. And I had to come up to speed on so many levels to figure out how to do that job. So I put my book to the side. And maybe a year in, my wonderful husband said he wanted to see, you know, he remembered my talking about those pages and he looked at them and he encouraged me to see it through. And so I, at that point, it was crazy. I wrote it while I was working at Vogue. I wrote it every morning. And I would wake up at five and write for about an hour. And then it became a superstitious process where I often didn't know how it was going or if it was good. But I told myself the one thing I can do is just write every day. So I'd, sometimes if I didn't manage to you know, if the ba I, my baby would wake up the same time as I did and I didn't have time to write in the morning, I would bring my computer and I would go for my, you know, lunch break and go to a coffee shop and just write for 20 minutes. It was this rule I had. So I was often lugging around a heavy computer on one shoulder. Love that. And here we are. So it took a while. And it's funny because people who read it say it takes about, I don't know, five hours to, like, it's, it's, not, it's not really hard work to read. And I'm happy to hear that. I mean, you often don't know all the, like, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into making it so seamless. Do you know what I mean? Like, to consume it, it's like watching a movie, right? It's like you think about the 8,000 people who are, like, holding the equipment on the sides and the takes that they do. But when you watch a movie, it's just like, boom, you're in it. Yes. It's like your yes. book, right? It's like immersed. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are able to, I mean, Sally Rooney, I think, writes books in seven weeks. And they also, you can read them in, on a Saturday afternoon, and she's totally brilliant. My process is a lot of writing and rewriting and smoothing over. And a lot of the times when I work on the book, you know, at, well, not at work, but in downtown Manhattan, at, you know, the Japanese bakery, I wasn't writing new sentences. I was just playing with paragraphs. So, Isn't Sally Rooney, though, in her 20s? She is, right? I, I mean, I don't know that. I didn't write a book in seven weeks in my 20s either. Okay, fine. Yeah. But maybe she doesn't. I maybe. Okay, yes. Right. She is a genius. However, maybe she has more time. Maybe she didn't have another job. I don't know. I can delete this right too. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, Rooney is more of a genius. No, than, I, I mean, <laughs> this is how I feel about people who can get up and like give speeches without any notes. Like if I ever speak in public, like I like to have everything written out, every word. You know, because that's easy for me. It's easier for me to like sit down and write yeah. the whole thing out. But if I have to say it, it's so much harder. So when I go to a speech or an event and I see someone stand up and like basically oh. speak in paragraphs, isn't it marvelous? It's amazing. I know. I'm like, how do they do that? It's amazing. I was at a birthday party this weekend for my friend's 50th birthday and suddenly it was all women. It was one of those wonderful, like, beautiful, all women gatherings. And suddenly 
around 11 o'clock, so people had been drinking. And, but one by one, her friends just got to the front of the room and gave the most epic, epic tributes to her, and they hadn't prepared them. No, any time I give a speech at like a wedding, my own wedding, anybody, it's either printed out and like in my hand or I don't do it. <laughs> I relate to that. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about hashtag clog life a little, which I know is away from the book, but you wrote this article in the New Yorker a while ago and you talked about how you had just left your job. You were basically having tequila for breakfast, which... Yes, well, I didn't leave my job. My job left me. Okay, so I was... Well, I appreciate that, but it's fine. Okay. I was laid off. It's in the wonderful world of magazines, people get laid off, and... Was that your Vogue job trip. that you were talking about? Yeah, so I was at Vogue for three years and change, and then I was not in Vogue, okay. and I was, I was like completely lost. I, was, I just remember just feeling like I was living an out-of-body experience because so much of my identity by that point had become working so hard at this incredibly intense magazine. And I just needed something, I guess, that was more grounded and more tangible to wrap all of my anxiety and confusion around. And for me, it became purchasing a pair of clogs because at Vogue, one doesn't wear clogs. And I, you know, I was home. I had boxes and boxes of like, the contents of my office, including all these high heels that I used to change into. And I figured, all right, I'm just going to become one of those cool women I see who have a, an amorphous line of work. And they just look so beautiful and creative. And they're floating around Brooklyn, where I live. And they're always wearing clogs. And I wrote a piece for The New Yorker about... What I, what I called hashtag clog life, because I started putting pictures on my Instagram account of life outside of the skyscraper, you know, strange, you know, crackers and peanut butter in my apartment for lunch, hashtag clog life. And it, it just became a way to survive. It was a, I found it very amusing. At, you know, people didn't really understand what was happening. Someone thought I was starting a clog zine i remember the woman who i used, worked with the vogue email she's like is it you have a new job now and anyway then the new yorker article came out and that actually resonated with people i think a because they were shocked to read somebody write so nudely or nakedly about being fired but also because clogs in certain zip codes are the only thing people wear and it hadn't yet actually been explored and so it was one of those, like, a lot of, I got a lot of messages of, why didn't I think of that? You know, I should have written that article. I, how did it not occur to me that we are, like, walking around like Dutch farmers? What are we doing? <laughs> and so I clogged life. A, a really good friend of mine named Eviana, at the time, she said, this article, I love it. You should also start an Instagram account. You should just keep it going. So I did, and I didn't know what the point of it was. But I sort of like the way I wrote that, my book, and then I wrote every single day. I have ever since every day posted a picture that is somehow clog life to me. And it has come to me, you know, it's sort of this dreamy alternative reality where everyone is creative and has time to read, you know, I don't know, essays by Rachel Cusk for hours and hours and eat beautiful, freshly taken from the land salads for lunch. And at this point, though, it's become a community. There's... I don't think I don't qualify as a micro influencer because you have to have fifty thousand followers. I am a maybe a, a nano speco influencer. <laughs> for, 
But I have these 5,000 friends all over the world, and it keeps me happy. Like, it's, it's the strangest thing, because I've never actually had a circle of friends. I've always had specific, you know, one-on-one friendships. And suddenly I feel like, okay, I get it. I understand now why people join sororities or why people manage to stay in book clubs for more than two months. It's, like, it's a wonderful thing to feel like you're united with women. And there's no men in clog life. Men do not like clogs. There's one pervert who messages every single woman on clog life to tell her that he is a clog fetishist. But that's it. Other than that, we are just... You can block, you know. I'm sure you know this. I do. Okay. I do. And then, then I comment. Well, I then then my my clog heads write to me and they say, "Do you know about this guy?" Wow. Yeah. That's I, so neat that you did that. It's so. It's just the coolest. It's like you just did what you were doing, and next thing you know, you found all these like-minded people, and now you have. Yeah. I, it's like it's just amazing. You like manifested this what you needed. It was a real lemons to lemonade yeah, thing. So cool. And it's been really great with the book because. You know, a lot of the people who follow Clog Life are, you know, they're they're just helping with the book. Mm-hmm. I'm having a reading at a clog store in the Hudson Valley, and one my moderator is a Clog Life friend. She's a wonderful food writer named Kolu Henry. I met her through that. She is providing wine through some cloggy vineyard, and then there's another Clog Life member her name is Tamara Adler and she is a you know a food writer and she's providing she's making deviled eggs I think like that all these so people cool. are coming together through it and being friends I feel like clogs the funny thing about the word clogs is it completely disarms other women and sometimes it can be tricky to, to have a conversation for the first time with a woman but for some reason, when clogs becomes the subject, everyone has something to say, even if it's that they hate clogs. It's just a silly. It's a, maybe it's just because the word is silly yeah. sounding. Huh. I wore clogs in high school. Great. It's like black clogs with the wood bottom. They had like a little strap you could wear it behind, but I wore it on top. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. That was like the thing. I would wear it with like black jeans that I cut off at the bottoms. <laughs> So you were anyway, a proto-clog head. A, a proto-clog head. But that was my last pair. I don't know. Then I went to, like, Doc Martens, and I followed, like, every trend at the time. And now I wear Vans. Like, every day I wear Vans. I, that's why I was saying yeah. I want to start, like, now I want to start, like, hashtag Vans life. Because right. maybe there's, like, a whole group of people out there. Oh, there is. Who yeah, only wear Vans. Like, moms who wear Vans. Or not like, to be confused with van life, right? Right. Not yeah. living in a van. No. This is yeah. it. <laughs> The vans um, are very cool. I haven't, I haven't gone over to the van side yet, okay. but I understand that they, they, they have their own connotations, and I respect them. I don't even know what it means. I have to, like, dig into this deeper. What does it say about me as a person that I wear vans now instead of, like, like I almost never wear heels. Like, almost never. It well, hurts my knees. It's like I'm running after the kids. I'm yes. often literally running places because I'm often late these days. And I don't know. I'm like, I have to wear something. I honestly think that should be one of your next articles. Right, great articles, and yeah, you should right. look into the vans. Yeah, I think I will. And I was thinking, why are you? Why did you not write a book about clog life? You must have been pitched that, or like that should be your next book. It could even just be like Instagram e, like really cool pictures, like sepia tone, like of the clogs. Like know? a maybe, a, yeah, like a, like a coffee table. Exactly. Book. I imagine there's a coffee table book that might do really well in Japan, right? It could be sold at every single clog store. Like every clog store could sell it. I appreciate yours. Your, your vision. Only because it just, like, reinforces. Like, sometimes I'll buy something or a book that even if I'm not 
going to read it cover to cover or whatever. It reminds me of something that I care about, so I'd like to have it as like a talisman almost. Yes. So it's not like it has to commercialize what you're doing right. as much as like... Right, if it wasn't selling like, It's different than taking... Right, or be, something. Right, it would be different because someone reached out to me recently about doing like sponsored content. And anyway, I... I Anyway, okay, we can okay. talk about that. Okay. <laughs> like, you have it. to do this. <laughs> okay, so what's coming... Wait, I have to ask you about your young adult fiction yes, writing, yes. because that's like a whole thing in and of itself. Do, you don't do it anymore. I don't write young adult fiction anymore. You wrote a lot about 10th grade. You I had wrote, all these books you had. I, the Rise and Fall of a 10th Grade Social Climber, Dream Life. Then you had Foreign Exposure, a Social Climber Abroad, all Q, no A, more tales of a 10th grade social climber. That's right. What happened in 10th grade? Tell me about this social climbing situation. That's funny. 10th, well, 10th grade was really, really fun. It was actually too fun. And I... Where did you grow up? Where did so you? I grew up in Brooklyn, and I went to a small progressive school for my whole life until 9th grade. And then I got into Stuyvesant, which is like the, the math and science public school. And I was so excited to go and be new somewhere, somewhere where everyone didn't know everything about me. I ended up really enjoying it to a degree where a psychologist was called in and it was decided that perhaps it would be best if I returned to my small school in the neighborhood where I grew up where I would be under a bit more supervision. And when I came back, in 11th grade, I was sort of alienated. I, the, the kids from my school that I returned to didn't really want to accept me back. I think there was an element of, you know, well, she left us, and I hadn't maintained ties as well as I could have. And anyway, so I, I went from being this, this you know, wild city creature of the 90s to being a, you know, I spent all my time in the library, and we had this amazing librarian who had the most adult literary fiction. Like she, she had the, a stack by the front of the library, and it was all the uh, vintage contemporaries. So it was like it was less than zero and Mary Gateskill. So basically, I hung out and read a lot about sex workers who in the East Village, and a uh, you know my Mary Gateskill obsession was born. But anyway, I had a very intense, emotionally intense adolescence. So it did lend itself to, you know, fictionalization. And what happened was I was a journalist. I am a journalist, but I tried to get a newspaper job in London when I was in my mid-20s. And I went to London and met with all these newspaper editors, and they all looked at me like I was insane, and nobody thought that I needed to be the next voice of their generation. I came back to New York, but then I started getting assignments from British editors who needed someone to go do an interview in New York. And I was asked to go and interview Gossip Girl, which was not something I had ever heard of. But I went to Barnes & Noble, and I discovered the series, and it was delicious. And I called a friend of mine, Laura Moser, who is one of the most hilarious and women, and also just an amazing writer. And we'd, we'd always collaborate on creative things. And I said, do you want it? Should we try to write a comedy for teenagers? You know, with this, the stuff that they're putting out is totally different from the Paula Danziger and Babysitter's Clubs that we grew up on. And we had so much fun with that. So that's how I started writing young adult fiction. So cool. 
And do your kids, is it still too old? Well, sometimes I, I get bored of what we read at bedtime. Sometimes I did the other night pick up, it was on the shelf, and I did start reading a scene that was set in an art gallery. And my son was lying there and listening for a little bit. And then he said, Mom, this is terrible. Oh, no, change it. <laughs> He's like, what is this? That's really funny. So aside from producing the book I want you to do about mm-hmm. the clog life, what do you have coming next after this? I'm going to write another novel. Do you have an idea for it already? I have an idea. Yes, I'm excited to make space, um, get really started. And you're still a contributing editor at Vogue, so does that mean you still go in? and? I don't go in, but I write about books for them every month. So that takes a lot of time, too. I, I spend a lot of time reviewing galleys of new books and figuring out what the columns should be. And most of my columns are about several books, and I'm a very slow reader. I like to hear a book when I read. You know, I like mm-hmm. to imagine what it sounds like. So that's kind of, that's what I do. I split my time between writing about books and I'm currently spending a lot of time putting a book out in the world and then I will go back to writing another book. So when do you find all the time to read all the books? For the ones you review? Yeah. The ones you maybe do for fun or maybe the same? Well, I think the question is more the question has really been, when do I find time to write? And that's something okay. I need to work on better. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have deadlines for when I read the books. So that's how I find the time. Yeah, I, you just make You know, I yeah. wake up and the kids are at school and I need to have, you know, a column by next week about three books I haven't read yet. So I get to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how I found time to read. Like, if you make it like a thing, right? Like, I'm interviewing these people. I have to read these books. Exactly. I'm going to do it. Like, oh, God. Right? Like, yes. I'm, that's what I'm doing. But I do it because I love it, and I'm sure you love it, too. Oh, it's the best job ever. Yeah. And before, I was like, oh, I can't read. I, and reading to me was like getting a massage. I don't know, like, I'm going to, what, sit on my couch and read in the afternoon? No, I, like, right. eating do- bonbons right. and exactly. reading a paperback. My dad always, what are you doing today? Like, sitting around eating bonbons? And so, like, every time in my head, I think that all the time. But when you make it into something. Right. Yeah, when you have right. every excuse to do what you love. Yes. Reading or anything See, else, podcasts really. are wonderful. For yeah, so many there reasons. Reasons. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I, well, the cliched advice is read a lot. And I will not say that. I will say be honest. Write something that you'd be a little scared of people seeing. It might be really good. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Moms don't have time to read books. Oh, thanks for having me. I love the show. Oh. It's so great to meet you in person. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 